a bugle show to alert you to. We'll be part of the Unmute Podcast Festival. We're doing a show at 7pm on the 24th of October. Details are at, uh, well, on the internet. Chris, can you be more specific than that? What, than the internet? Well, yeah, Uh, than the internet. Is there a particular bit of the internet? Yeah, you can go to unmutepodcastfestival.com or one of our social media channels. And, you know, or you could just use the internet to find out what 7pm is in your time. Yeah. Because that's 7pm GMT. Uh, Also, while you're on the internet, you can buy all the new Bugle merch. Um... Including the uh, the new Christmas jumper, which looks absolutely spectacular. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to another issue of the audio newspaper that was sent by Almighty God himself back in 2007 to chart the final decline of the human race and the planet, both of which were, of course, always seen very much as a first draft by the renowned deity and winner of the 33 AD Worst Parent of the Year Award. I am Andy Zaltzman, although to be honest I'm not even sure I believe myself when I say that anymore, and this is issue 4,168 of the bugle coincidentally would you believe the average number of excuses a hypothetical uh, cgi white house press secretary would wheel out to exonerate a hypothetical cgi tycoon president who had just drowned 12 puppies in a vat of whiskey while slapping a praying nun in the face with a jesus-shaped prosthetic willy before acknowledging that yes he might have slightly misacted i am in the shed in london it's the 5th of october 2020 and joining me for the latest celebration of the glorious state of our planet uh, from uh, well just a little bit south of here the quibbling sibling herself helen zaltzman hello andy how are you helen uh <laughs> still alive apparently oh well, there you go unless That's something this to, the afterlife something to cling to superb glasses by the way are they new oh, uh no oh uh, but um you know, yeah, they've not got anything cricket-related on them, so maybe you just couldn't see them before. Helen has <laughs> worn them on at least one previous bugle, I'm oh, sure. Oh, right, OK. I'm not, I'm not very good at noticing these things. <laughs> <laughs> Helen, I should say, is in uh, Brighton currently. Yes. Uh, which is basically directly south of where I am, from even further south and quite a lot east. Uh, f- joining us from India, Anuvab Pal. Hello, Andy. Hello, Helen. Hello, Anuvab. What Hello. a pleasure to see you. Likewise. How's uh, how's India, Anivab? Well, Andy, Helen, the biggest news from the subcontinent uh, is that the government has finally found a cure for the coronavirus. All right. Oh, congrats. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, because I personally did it as well. Um, and it lies not in a vaccine, uh, which these advanced countries are so foolishly searching for, but as Andy knows well, in the Indian Premier League, a two-month-long cricket tournament... Uh, that has the nation so enthralled that trivial news like India quickly climbing to the most infected nation is relegated <laughs> to the third page of the newspaper for the much more important headline that a certain Mumbai team opener has accidentally edged a ball to first slip. <laughs> um, it's quite big news in 2020 cricket because obviously you don't have slips for much of the innings. So actually a slip catch is probably definitely front page news, I'd say. And if I'm way, way ahead of any... ephemeral viral related news you're absolutely right Adi and I think uh, it's a testament to the state of uh, you know health services data in this country 
when uh, you, Andy, tweet about IPL statistics, it is more shared on Twitter than when the number of infection statistics are tweeted by the health ministry. Uh, <laughs> well, that, priorities. That's a bit of a concern. Exactly. Exactly, Helen. Priorities. In fact, some state leaders with the arrival of the IPL have declared complete victory over the virus. Uh, and it was demonstrated by the fact that this massive cricket tournament is taking place, as you both know well, in the Indian heartland of the United Arab Emirates, <laughs> a place that is so Indian that it isn't even in India. Yes, I mean, I, I guess, you know, I guess they had to choose the UAE because, you know, it is a place that is so soulless that e- even a virus wouldn't bother going there, I guess. So it's probably the <laughs> safest place to hold a cricket tournament. We are recording on the 5th of October 2020. Today is World Teachers Day. And, I mean, it does rather raise the question, should we actually be celebrating teachers? Should we be celebrating these textbook-waggling, whiteboard-bothering, I know more than your child about something I've been trained in, self-proclaimed educators, who insist on filling the world's children with the knowledge, skills, hope and curiosity that on first contact with the reality of the world, will inevitably lead them to a lifetime of confusion and crushed expectations. Yuta, are these, are these really the kind of people we should be holding up as, uh, as inspirations for the world? If this year has taught us one thing, and let's be honest, it's tried to teach us lots of things, but we're going to do our best to ignore them all. But if, if this year has taught us one thing, it is that knowing about the world is far less comforting than, for example, being a brick. Uh, because... I have bricks in the wall of my house, and they've dealt with this year far more stably than I have. So <laughs> don't celebrate teachers, just chat to a brick. Are the bricks better at other things than you as well? Like cleaning? Well, I mean, almost certainly, Helen. I have... Uh, time management. I think I have two skills in life, and um, you'd probably back the brick <laughs> on everything apart from cricket statistics and possibly comedy. <laughs> <laughs> People always, Andy, say that teachers say inspirational things. You know, in the movies, they always show you teachers that give inspirational speeches. Um, my memory of my favorite teacher was my 11th uh, grade history teacher, Mr. Robert Myers, who was an Anglo-Indian gentleman, who said to our whole class, leave the country as soon as you can and promptly migrated to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I mean, in many ways, that's a practical lesson, isn't that? It's teaching you about... The harsh realities of economics <laughs> teaching you, and, and from that you can learn all about history and everything that goes right. with it. No. There's, there's, there's too many teachers just stuck to books rather than you know action. Teach by actions. Well, I had a teacher that used to throw things at pupils. So is that action? Well, it depends what they're throwing. Uh, like board rubbers, books. He also had a plate on his desk that had the spores from where a mushroom had disintegrated on it and he just uh, kept it there for years. I had a teacher who had a, who had a foam brick that he would uh, occasionally throw at people. But the problem is once you've done it once, it ceases to re- really have any particular threat. What he really needed was a selection of bricks, most of which were foam, but at least one of which was brick. <laughs> and then he would have had our full undivided attention. <laughs> Um, you know the the thing is sometimes I it, it isn't even physical torture. Sometimes it's uh, you know academic and psychological torture that I was quite interested in. Uh, my class teacher once. Uh, <laughs> I mean, out of context, Anivab, that sentence sounds really bad, really bad. <laughs> Correct. 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 <laughs> Sitting alone in a house in Calcutta, it's a worrying thing to say to people. Um, 
But she used to have big, a big, big sort of thing of chart paper put up, and she'd have she'd have a drawing of the guy that had the best exam results, at, and he'd be the tallest, and then she'd draw like where we all stood in comparison to him, <laughs> and she'd have a little arrow. I was usually a speck because he was really tall. <laughs> And then she draw an arrow and said, "This is you, and you are nothing. And this is the main guy, and he is ninety-four <laughs> percent." Right, it's time for the top story this week. Donald Trump has COVID. Um, now, to be honest, it, this is October, and I'm quite surprised that it took this long for that headline to come into existence. Uh, Last Friday, we're recording on Monday this week, last Friday the news broke that Trump had tested positive for COVID-19 and vice versa. Our sympathies to both uh, for what they must be going through. I wouldn't wish either of them on my worst enemies. Uh, Trump has um, promised or threatened that he would keep on working through his disease. He's been photographed (coughs) signing blank bits of paper. Well, that's real work, Andy. This is how you learn. (laughs) This basically tells you everything about how American politics works. Obviously, we wish the president a full recovery, uh, as well as a new, calmer, wiser perspective on life, a massive electoral humiliation and a long, slow retirement haunted by guilt. Uh, sadly, if he's only the first, is uh, is likely. Now, um, it has been, you know, it's been an odd year. It's been uh, a, a, a depressing campaign watching uh, America as, as fans. And, you know, we are, you know, as none of us are allowed to vote, um... You know, we're voiceless in this, and yet, as I keep saying, you know, we should be the people allowed to vote in an American uh, election. Um, and how how uh, how has this story s- struck you as, uh, as citizens of the of the world and indeed the universe of which uh, Trump is de facto king? Well, it's impressive that even during this, he has kept working by on Saturday having a photo shoot working busily in two different fake offices in the <laughs> hospital and the metadata on the photo show that they were taken only 10 minutes apart so <laughs> just loves to switch locations a lot to be the most productive gotta keep fresh in your mind haven't you right and then on sunday went for a car ride <laughs> um which uh, apparently so in the presidential suv it's um hermetically sealed against chemical attack so whoever is inside it with him is at even more risk of catching covid so what a privilege so to catch it from the best hermetically sealed from chemical or i guess indeed biological attack but within it he was essentially biologically attacking his own security detail the call was coming from inside the house <laughs> <laughs> melania has refused to visit him because that would expose the agents who would drive her to the hospital and the medical staff who would take her to him so someone in the family is being responsible. <laughs> um, yes, it's quite odd, this, this joyride that he took on Sunday, a little, uh, little break from being in hospital to go for a spin in a motorcade and wave at his fans, seeking to project strength, or at least the kind of weakness that idiots think is strength, which is quite a big different difference, uh, which is quite a big difference. He tweeted that he would pay a, quote, surprise visit to the Patriots outside his hospital. Um... I mean, it's a curious form of patriotism, isn't it, that Trump inspires to support a man who stands against pretty much everything America likes to pretend that it stands for. Uh, but I guess patriotism is like money. You've either got it or you haven't, uh, or you've got <laughs> some of it from time to time. Uh, you probably inherited it from your parents. Or, or found some in the back of the sofa. Yeah, there might be a bit down the back of the sofa. Or you can pretend you've got more of it than you actually do, just to try and fit in and look cool. Or can you, you launder it? 
Uh, you can, you, I think you can launder patriotism, yes. Mm-hmm. You might not fully understand how it works or why people are so obsessed with it and think that whilst in principle there's nothing wrong with it, the way it's come to be used these days causes widespread damage and misery around the world. And you'd be entirely right to be suspicious of people who flash theirs about too much. So th- the similarities are are un- uncanny. And, and it, uh, anyway, I've been in India, obviously. It's a, it's overt patriotism has, has become a sort of massive political strategy really for narendra modi and his uh, and his government and uh, i don't know what, what's modi's response to, to trump's personal viral issue been so, so the car ride helen talked about it's got a lot of press here right because as you know indian politics has become very simple now uh, you are either for prime minister modi or against india um, that's really <laughs> that's really the way to look at any sort of patriots um so basically he Got out. He got out of the hospital, full of COVID. Got into a car and waved to his fans, right? And Prime Minister Modi came out in defense of that, and said, "There's nothing wrong in meeting die-hard nationalists, right?" Which makes which makes sense because it got me thinking about anyone with a fan base, right? The thing is, Andy, can we really keep a very famous person down with COVID for too long? Um, and then I started thinking about you, Andy. And I right, said, okay, you know, Andy, yeah. God forbid, if you were struck with this virus and your yeah. cricket statistics fans were clamoring outside your house, as they often do, yeah. um, <laughs> would you time. not leave all the time? Yeah. Would you not leave your house shielded by heavy security and wave a little, maybe even mime a square cut? I, I mean, I, yes. I mean, obviously, but I, I have a, a greater responsibility to to fans of cricket statistics, even than Donald Trump has to the public of America. You know, they... they <laughs> They need me, I think. Um, <laughs> you know, and I have a I have a duty to get out, get out there and you know shout averages out of a out of a window and you know if you, if I can't do that then I mean, what's 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 the point of why did I fight all those world wars? You know, if I have to succumb to whatever the virus tells me to do, it's uh, great latest- when a kind of grandiose uh, idea of self is coupled with very low ambition. <laughs> <laughs> I think I had that as a review for one of my Edinburgh shows. Um, <laughs> the latest medical briefing on uh, on Trump's condition. Uh, well, just take a guess, Buglers, or make it up, uh, because no one has a f***ing clue because everything is shrouded in deceit and secrecy. Now, obviously, we do not wish illness or death on anyone, unlike Donald Trump himself, of course, who through his policies this year has done exactly that to his own people and to show the magic of high office, those wishes have actually come true for him to a statistically remarkable degree. Um, he is not currently on oxygen, according to his doctor. Um, I don't know if he... Does he need it? Does he need oxygen? What, to does, respire? Um, or has he can, evolved beyond that? I think he might have gone beyond that. He's, he's an anaerobe, is that what you're... Yes, I think he might be some kind of anaerobic being. Um, or, or he conducts photosynthesis, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> I don't be, yeah, that's too green for him, I think. They're having to uh, try and find the 206 guests who attended his rally at his own golf club in New Jersey the other day. <laughs> As if attending a Trump rally at a Trump golf club could ever bite you on the arse. <laughs> <laughs> Just 206 count as a rally. That doesn't seem enough for me. That, I mean, you know, a rally needs at least a thousand, Helen. I mean, oh, take you're, back you're, what I said about ambition earlier. Yes, you're the, uh, see, the the absolute uh, arbiter of the meaning of all words in the world. <laughs> Does it count as a rally with only 206 people? I suppose it really depends on the intent. There was also the event at the White House, which has been uh, pinpointed as a potential super-spreading event when uh, 
Amy Coney Barrett, the uh, nominee for the uh, Supreme Court, vacated by the untimely death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, was uh, paraded in front of uh, hundreds of people, closely packed, uh, not wearing masks, because why would you wear a mask when you're celebrating skewing the balance of American politics and society for a generation? You want to be able to fully appreciate the Machiavellian grins on people's faces. So I, I can understand people not wanting to wear masks at that, but the virus never want to miss an open goal seems to have attended that event as well and now loads of people there have tested uh, positive I mean, and it's, it's particularly curious because in trump's world illness is a weakness essentially he lambasted hillary clinton in 2016 for being ill i think he had to go at abraham lincoln for being a wimp for I'm dying dead. and uh, jfk for being a simpering milksop for getting in the way of that of that bullet it's uh, how is um helen how do you i mean you spent a lot of time in america over mm. recent years and and we grew up in a household where illness was uh, weakness and frowned upon. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I'm not sure um, our, our father had quite the same go-getting energy as Donald Trump has shown through his career. And I think, you know, if, if only Trump could have learned from him, the world would be a happier place. Um, but mm. uh, is there any way Trump can spin this as a positive? Yes. That, you know, he, and how is he going to do that? I don't know how, Andy, because luckily my mind doesn't think the same as his, but he does have a wonderful capacity for turning shit into even more gargantuan amounts of shit and then throwing them around. That's a skill. It is unfortunately a skill which he has demonstrated so many times. So I think he'll manage to say that Black Lives Matter gave it to him, the Dems gave it to him. Uh, he's defeated the virus and is the strongest man in the world. Even if he dies, then he'll find a way to spin that from beyond the grave. You know he will. So you're basically saying he's an alchemic shit volcano. <laughs> I'm not not saying that. Good. Um, if you, do you guys remember there was that famous uh, Hollywood film where Kevin Klein was a pig farmer and part-time ventriloquist, and he his main thing was that he looked like the president of the United States. And when the president becomes incapacitated, they hire this pig farmer and ventriloquist, and he becomes an excellent president uh, <laughs> because he starts asking basic questions like, why do we have to drop this bomb? Um, questions that haven't been asked in ages. So perhaps it's it's like some version of that that we're looking at, Andy. I've not seen it. What's that film called? You know? Is it Dave? Dave. Thank you. Oh. Thank you. Well, I'll, I'll give it. It's, I mean, it would, that would be reassuring. If that's uh, if that's the case, I mean, uh, well, they did elect an unqualified person to be president, and it didn't work out like in the film. Yes, I guess so. I mean, I guess you know, films don't they are not always ruthlessly accurate. That's a great problem with uh, fiction. Yeah. Um, the um, this followed on the, on uh, hot on the heels of the debate last week, which happened after we recorded last week's uh, last week's bugle. Um, uh, in the interest of balance, we should say that the debate was both a car crash and a train wreck and the Titanic hammering snout first into Mount Everest. Um, Joe Biden described Trump's performance in the debate as a wake-up call to all Americans, which does raise the question of how the f*** have you slept through the last four f***ing years? That, that is like coming back from a seaside trip to Normandy in June 1944 saying, well, the ice cream shop was shut for some reason and they wouldn't let us go paddleboarding and this group of rather noisy Americans had taken our normal spot. But otherwise, we had an absolutely lovely day. He's old, Andy. He needs naps. <laughs> it was um, the moderator, Chris Wallace, who was, whose performance was, uh, was somewhat criticised, said, I never dreamt that it would go off the tracks the way that it did. Um, now, again... 
that shows a, a charming degree of naivety from someone who has been alive for a long time and American. Um, I read somewhere that the longest Trump waited before interrupting Joe Biden was about six seconds. And uh, <laughs> I'd like to posit a theory, uh, and I just want to know what you think. Um, the first debate I ever took part in was in Calcutta when I was in fourth grade. And I was nudged by my neighbor, Prashant Agarwal, who turned to me and said, the way to win this debate is just make some sort of noise while the other guy is speaking. Um, <laughs> and I think the, to the topic had to do with animals or colonialism. I don't know what it was. And the moment the other guy started speaking, every 10 seconds, I just went, blah. And, uh, and, you know, I somehow feel like this presidential election, this kind of got hold of maybe, you know, some memory of this or tape of this and because it followed the same sort of pattern um again i'm bringing this up because it's world teachers day and you know yeah just, the sharing well i think yeah. boris johnson was clearly you know given the same instruction judging by how he's uh, tried to uh, bluster his way out of prime minister's questions recently um Andy, you were a debate champion at school weren't you uh i'm not sure i was a champion Can you win a gold pen like a gold quill pen oh Oh, you know remember. what every teenage boy wants. Yeah, yeah, I mean they were all the rage back in the uh, back in the early nineties. Golden quill pens. Has anything good ever come from a debate? From a debate, <laughs> mm -hmm. or a golden quill? Um, Apart from the quill that you loved so much, you forgot all about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's I mean, certainly not recent. I mean, I, we have a bit of recency bias here, Helen. Not all debates have been as bad as last week's debate. Given you are a debate winner, Andy, and I don't know if British debating customs are different from here, was listening a part of the thing? No. Frowned upon. No, absolutely not. No, no. The, but that's a sign of weakness, uh, listening. It's a sign <laughs> of... Um, it's almost a kind of sign of being European, I think. Um, so, no, we're certainly at the type of school I was at. We're not really encouraged to, to listen. Uh, just talk more loudly, which is... Yeah, that's the, the equivalent of listening. I mean, why cultivate a skill you'll never need to use in adult life? Uh, I mean, to be honest, the skills I've ended up using in adult life... Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not... Bullshitting? Oh, bullshitting and uh, obsessing about uh, people hitting balls with a bat and the numerical implications thereof. Um, I don't know. I'm not an expert on what, what are relevant life, life skills to, to, to inculcate in youngsters, Helen. No shit. <laughs> Did you also see how Britain has uh, aced COVID this week by misplacing nearly 16,000 COVID test results in the last few days? Yes. Um, because of the limitations of Excel spreadsheets not being able to have quite enough columns and they didn't realise. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, this is... It's heroic, really, isn't it? Uh, yeah, we Brits, we will not be cowed by technology. Uh, we will not be cowed by numbers. Um, I mean, the, the, this was described as a technical glitch, wasn't it? That was the official... There was a technical glitch surrounding the massive misreporting of the number of COVID cases. Um, isn't I'm not sure it's just that many people having COVID? Yes. Well, that's but... a technical glitch, I guess. I mean, I, I don't know if the technical glitch is with the spreadsheet or if it's a technical glitch uh, in the 
tracking and tracing system or a technical glitch whereby under a quarter of the population of the UK can vote in a government with no discernible qualifications to have de facto de- dictatorial powers led by a man with absolutely no appropriate experience for the job. That, that to me, that's the key technical glitch we need to be, we need to be addressing. And, you know, Bill Gates not being enough f***ing columns in his spreadsheet, that's a side issue. Uh, exciting language news this week, Helen, uh, coming from parrots in a in a wildlife park in Lincolnshire, sort of showing what is really great about about the English language uh, about which you know so much. That's right, Andy. Uh, these birds made me very proud. Um, they acquired five new African grey parrots in August, apparently because a lot of people during quarantine realised they do not actually have the capacity for a pet parrot. And... <laughs> They put them We've all, all learned a quor- lot this year, haven't we? How else are you going to learn? Um, they put them all in quarantine together and they all were swearing their little beaks off. <laughs> um, so they've had to remove them from public display. I would pay extra to go and see five parrots swearing <laughs> in unison. Or apparently one of them would swear and then the next one would laugh and then swear. They'd all go around kind of appreciating the swears and then replicating them. <laughs> So I mean how was it do we know yet was it was it one sweary parrot who then taught the other parrots to swear or have all the parrot owners in Lincolnshire where this wildlife park is located have they all separately been teaching their parrots to swear and then presumably laughing when their parrots do swear which they then which, which their parrots then learn to follow up their swears with Well Andy what percentage of owners of parrots with the capacity for uh, speech acquisition do you think just launched straight in with the swears well pr- above ni- 90 uh well above 90 i would think uh, uh so they may have come with some vocabulary already yeah but what they've done now is separated them and put them in different groups of to discourage this behavior which suggests they're just going to spread the swearing to even more parrots right surely this is i mean to, we should put this in context this was by no means the least dignified conversation of last week and and it does show where we've reached as a planet that a cage full of foul-beaked parrots was more insightful polite and civilized than a presidential debate in america to rather highlight the problems we've got as a species at the moment apparently the swearing did slightly stop uh when um they switched off the 24-hour news channel that was on the tv in the parrot's cage and presumably the parrot's stopped and listened to the entire swearing before they responded to the other parrot with their swearing <laughs> you hope so yeah you don't want an interrupting sweary parrot do you uh, india news now uh, anuvab um, amnesty international has uh, said that it's uh, been forced to halt its uh, operations in india due to government threats and r- reprisals uh, the indian government froze amnesty's bank accounts not exactly uh, sort of exuding a there's definitely nothing to see here vibe and you know when amnesty international halts its operations generally that is a sign that there is a very good reason for amnesty international to be operating somewhere can you fill us in on this story and what's uh, what's been going on well, that's right, Andy. Well, BBC has been reporting Amnesty International says it's been forced to halt its India operations due to reprisals from the government. Now, according to me, there's a bit of whining going on here from Amnesty because the watchdog has accused the government of pursuing a witch hunt against the organization. And I don't see how this is a witch hunt. All the government has done is that it's frozen their bank accounts, forced to lay off all their staff in the country, 
told them to suspend all their campaign and research work and arrested the head of Amnesty. Um, <laughs> I, I don't see this uh, at all as a witch hunt. All that's happened, you know, is that these tiny things have happened. And the Indian government said in a statement that the accusations were unfortunate, exaggerated and far from the truth. Um, the head of Amnesty, who was arrested for a bit, said from prison that this sort of clampdown is seen as the death of a transparent human rights organization being allowed to function in a country claiming to be an open westernized democracy. And to them, um, I would say, you know, Amnesty, don't be so limited in your view. Be open, be global. You know, what you see in India is draconian. Vladimir Putin or Premier Xi would see it as just another Tuesday. So... <laughs> I think, again, it's about perspective, you know. Um, that, that is, in fact, the title of uh, Putin and Xi's new podcast, Just Another <laughs> Tuesday, in which they, uh, they tell funny stories about the latest uh, clampdowns on uh, political opponents and um, internments of people in concentration camps. So it's a good listen. Uncomfortable, but interesting. <laughs> now, just for the record, this is apparently not the first time Amnesty has been shut down in India. And that has been the government's defence. They said that in the history of India, this is the fourth time we've sh shut Amnesty down. And this is the only time we've been in power. So three <laughs> other times, other people shut you down. So please do not only hold us responsible. Which, if nothing else, Andy, shows a very good understanding of Indian history by the government. Which is why it is <laughs> such a good government. Um, and also, if anyone is listening to this podcast, big fan of Prime Minister Modi. Big fan. <laughs> Yes, I mean, shutting down Amnesty International is not... It doesn't, like I say, it doesn't sort of exude... Yeah, it, it doesn't sort of project the idea that there's nothing there to be concerned about. It's like when you hear someone use the words, there's no need to panic but. You just assume that there is absolutely 100% cast-iron reason to panic. It's not like a guilty-looking child, unprompted, telling mummy and daddy... I definitely did not coat the hamster in peanut butter and glue a little mitre on its head to make it look like a rodent pope in a peanut butter chasuble. It just raises suspicions when that kind of thing happens, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, if you remember on this podcast, we've talked a while ago about the Citizenship Amendment Act that happened in India a few months ago. Basically, they were trying to exclude any fleeing Muslim refugees from seeking refuge in India claiming that in India would only give refuge to Hindus. And there were protests all around the country and, and riots and all sorts of things. And the police are just bringing out chart sheets and accusations. Uh, and it turns out, you know, shockingly, it's basically the protesters who are to blame and they've been imprisoned. And none of the people that were that were sort of, you know, beating up the protesters, none of them have any charges against them. So. Again, justice is being served. So I don't know what Amnesty is whining about. <laughs> the, they apparently claim that a fair trial is not taking place. But, you know, again, how would we know? Because now Amnesty's <laughs> accounts are frozen. So, <laughs> so we'd never know, and which is good. So I, I think the government is doing its job. It's just uh, statistics and chance that nobody from the government was responsible for the protests. It's just the people opposed to the government that were responsible and are in prison for it. Um, which, again, is the result of a fair and transparent process. Uh, and Vab, whenever you're on the show, you like to bring us up to date with the uh, latest uh, kind of large and small examples of corruption uh, at work in India. Uh, what's the, what's, uh, what, what have you got for us this time? Well, Andy Helen, this is quite a sad uh, sort of pandemic economic story. Uh, a Mumbai man has allegedly been cheated of £15,000 for trying to work as a male escort. 
So a 40-year-old man from Mumbai was duped to 15,000 pounds after being lured by fraudsters to become a male escort. Um, now, he was charged a lot of money by an agency who promised him work every evening. However, he claimed he was not provided any job. And in return, uh, he alleged that they, they took 15,000 pounds from him under the pretext of registration fees. Um, the man worked as a tailor and told the police that he got drawn to the offer as his tailoring unit had shut down. Uh, and so he thought about becoming a gigolo. We've all been there. Um, I was quite taken by that because I belong to an association, uh, Andy Helen, uh, of M Mumbai screenwriters, which is a shambolic, perhaps criminal organization <laughs> that uh, promises minimum wages and health insurance. But we haven't managed a registration book or a registration fees. So I was quite taken by the fact that male escorts have a registered body. Uh, turns out they don't. This was fraud and corruption. However, this has led to a big debate in India about where such a body is necessary. Um, and a number of people have signed this petition, notably uh, three male escorts and one tailor. <laughs> Never pay fees up front. It's a great point. <laughs> uh, museums news now. No, well, this has been a, a story that's rumbled on through the year. Uh, the latest is that the uh, British government has warned museums um, not to take down statues or exhibits under pressure from what they describe as the, the PC Brigade. Mm. Uh, they want to stop museums rewriting the version of history that we've previously uh, rewritten. Uh, there was a letter sent from the Secretary of State for uh, Culture, Media and Sport, Oliver Dowden, uh, laying out the government's uh, position in which he, he said, and in something of an understatement, history is ridden with moral complexity statues and other historical objects were created by generations with different perspectives and understandings of right and wrong um so what's yeah, uh, it's not a great argument like uh, lack of you know medical treatment with no anesthetic was created by previous generations and we don't seem to have uh, continued that in surgery yeah and look at the state of the country now massively overcrowded by people who would rightly have died in botched surgery were it not for the PC brigade insisting that we make medical advances. Right. Anesthesia makes a load of soft boys. <laughs> I think Donald Trump has basically said that in the past. Um, Helen, Andy, I have a question about this whole statue museum debate. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I hold a special place in my heart for a number of statues that for some reason of British people have shown up in India. I don't know how this happened, but it seems to be strewn across the country. Now, uh, my English is not very strong, but uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson was asked the reason perhaps some of these statues need to be moved to a uh, colonial museum is that you could write down that some of the things these people did were mistakes. And he responded by saying, uh, it depends on how you define mistake. Um, <laughs> so I just wanted your view on that, or whether are there several definitions of mistake? Well, I mean, it's very difficult when we look back on the history of the British Empire to, you know, work out what was a mistake, what was uh, uh, a blooper, technically, uh, what was a uh, procedural snafu. Um, what was a whoops-a-daisy? Yeah, exactly, a whoops-a-daisy. A whoops-a-daisy, I think, is anything with below 1,000 casualties. Uh, that's an official whoops-a-daisy. Uh, uh, above 1,000, you're getting into um, uh, yeah, a, a kerfuffle, I believe. Um, 
So, yeah, or did they mean the mistake was India's for being in the way when the British decided they wanted it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Donald Trump would see it as a weakness, really, <laughs> just just putting up any sort of fight. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, uh, yeah, Oliver Dowden says that these exhibits and uh, statues play an important role in teaching us about our past. I'm trying to think if I've ever been taught anything by a statue. Um, because usually looking at a statue of a 19th century military general just makes me feel kind of bored and angry but not necessarily informed yes Um, if they put up a statue of Wikipedia then that might work better right Um, but then the letter what would that look like? I mean probably it wouldn't look good Andy (laughs) but you know a lot of these generals don't look good um but uh, they sent this to 26 museums, including the Imperial War Museum, um, National Portrait Gallery, V&A, um, and Arts Council and National Lottery Heritage Fund with the threat, I would say, the veiled threat saying, the significant support you receive from the taxpayer is acknowledgement of the important cultural role you play for the entire country. Uh, I suppose you could say propagandist role, uh, if you disagree with yeah. cultural it is imperative that you continue to act impartially in line with your publicly funded status and not in a way that brings us into question. So it's basically keep the Parthenon marbles or else you take your (laughs) fundraising way. Also, I mean, you try to define mistake. What about impartiality? Is it impartial to have all the shit that we plundered from other places? Is it impartial to have statues of like this bunch of instead of other people <laughs> well maybe just, that, just wondering about a word i mean it's, it's possible that that could be a way to balance these things out you know if we keep we keep these uh statues of um that you know, we talked about it before the likes of robert clive at um Hanover and i we talked on our radio four series a, a, a couple of years ago the, the statue of clive that was uh erected almost 150 years after he died in complete disgrace as we attempted mm. to rewrite our history to make him look like less of a massive um, So, I don't know where, where the impartiality on... Can you be impartial on Robert Clive, Anivab? Well, you know, I'm slightly led by the fact that under the statues, still sitting in front of the Foreign Office sits the words Clive of India. So that, I think, was a start. But I, I have a slight... Maybe they meant con- Clive on India. Like <laughs> a sort of rampage on India. That's more accurate, right? Because he, he showed up and sat on it. Um, <laughs> but the interesting thing is that I have a contrarian view to this because the historian William Dalrymple has been sort of going on and on uh, lately in, in, to anyone who'd hear him about tearing down that statue um, and saying Clive was a war criminal, etc. But... In, in 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 sort of defense of him, what better statue to have to show the beginning of British pol- foreign policy than Clive <laughs> at the mouth of the Foreign Office? I mean, <laughs> I mean, as a true student, right, of British history, I think it begins with 1757 and Clive, and so so he he is indeed in the right place if <laughs> because uh, the, what what was behind him was previously the India Office. Uh, and after independence, all those papers got burnt and, you know, everyone was like, oh, this didn't happen. And it became now what is the Foreign Commonwealth Office. So I think he's he's in a good place because he shows you where it began, how it began with a tiny bit of loot and what's become <laughs> now. I guess so. And yeah, in terms of you know, learning, people learning from it, um, yeah, you can learn 
I'm not, I don't know how much you can learn from the statue of Clive. I think you could learn quite a lot from what the pigeons have done to the, the statue of Clive. I mean, in many ways, that's the more the more pertinent part of that. Scott. I mean, without without putting Clive there, we wouldn't have given the pigeons the opportunity to shit on his head. So, in many ways, all outdoor statues have an inbuilt natural impartiality. But we glorify these people, and the natural world will shit on their heads. Right, well, that brings us to the end of this week's uh, this week's bugle. Um, I, I hope uh, I don't know. I, it gets increasingly hard to know what to say at the end of a first sort of topical satirical news show. Uh, yeah, I hope things are, don't get much shitter over the next week. Will that do? What was it they used to say at the end of Crime Watch? Don't have nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean what they should have said is remember this is a statistically insignificant sample. Um, yes, okay. Well, don't have night. Let's go with don't have nightmares. Don't have nightmares, buglers. Uh, <laughs> other than the ones you have when watching the telly or reading the news. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, and if I have any uh, any shows you'd like to uh, alert our listeners to? Well, it's more of an anecdote from a thing I'm doing. I'm doing a comedy writing workshop for the last six weeks. Andy, and uh, we're hoping to have a noted IPL commentator, Andy Zaltzman, join us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we do it every Sunday. But the most interesting thing is, uh, at the end of the workshop, I do a Q&A. And last week, one of the students said, this thing that you're teaching, will this profession ever come back? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, the bleak future of comedy. Uh, under attack not only from COVID and the economic devastation related to it, but also from the fact that the universe is no longer amusing. Um, Helen, tell our listeners all about your various shows where they can hear you. Well, I have three podcasts. Uh, Answer Me This, Veronica Mars Investigations, and The Illusionist, which is about language. And I just put out an episode with the horrific origins of the word bulldozer. So if you want to feel even worse about voter suppression, I suggest you listen to that. <laughs> and what then start wanna... calling them earth movers. What, what, um, what, if we, uh, what if we want to feel better about voter suppression, Helen? How, what, have you got a show for that? I'm afraid I do not make a show for that, Andy. Right, that's why you don't do so much on the BBC, because you're not balanced enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a pariah. Uh, thank you for listening, Buglers. We'll be back next week with the latest exciting instalment of the history of the planet Earth. Goodbye. To conclude this week's show, here are some more lies about our premium level Bugle voluntary subscribers. To join the Bugle voluntary subscription scheme and make a one-off or recurring donation to the show, go to thebuglepodcast.com and click the donate button. Patrick Stewart, not that one, thought that the term delicatessen was spelled as the word delicate followed by the letters S and N, which he assumed stood for the words snacks and nibbles. In fact, Patrick briefly had a sideline as a rapper specialising in fine foods-themed hip-hop under the name Delicatessen, spelt D-apostrophe-L-I-C-K-8-S-N, when his debut single, You're in Salami Now, sampling status quo's hit song, You're in the Army Now, resulted in a court case, he retired from showbiz. Similarly, Ian Findlater, another etymological confusee, thought the term horoscope was made up of the words horrors and cope, Ian explains, I assumed it was weekly advice to guide you on how to manage to deal with the horrors of life. But then I read some, and I have to say, I was unimpressed on both counts. Disappointingly vague squared. 
Joining the list of VBVs, Vocabular Bewilderment Victims, Dan Randall used to misread the word specimen as specky men and assumed it was a word that highlighted the male dominance and prevalent goggle usage in the world of scientific research in the early 20th century. Archie Wade is never that impressed by those tortoises that people say have been alive for about 180 years. What have they actually done in that time, asks Archie. Tortoises have a tendency to live very much in their own comfort zone, and species need to do more than that to impress me. I've got a busy life, and I've only got time to be impressed by 15, maybe 20 different species. Chris Holland still has not given up hope that the crew and passengers who disappeared from the Mary Celeste ship in 1872 might still turn up alive and well. It's a bit of a long shot, admittedly, says Chris, but it is possible that they found a secret island of eternal life and have been hanging out there getting hammered and playing poker in the nude ever since. I reckon the novelty of that would probably wear off after 148 to 150 years, so if they are going to come back, concludes Chris, I reckon it will be soon. And finally, British N would prefer football if the goal was not an 8-yard by 8-foot rectangle enclosed by posts and a crossbar, but was instead a similarly shaped and sized stack of champagne glasses. British justifies this hope by saying, I think it would make the moment a goal is scored just that bit more spectacular, and it would also make goalkeepers try a lot harder as well. Here endeth this week's lies. From me, at least, I'm sure there will be other lies from other sources to keep you going until next time. Bye-bye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you 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 must be so excited. Listen now.